0: We're talking today to Paul Hooper, evolutionary anthropologist and director of education at the Santa Fe Institute, about his work with the Chimane people of Bolivia, a society that is part hunter-gatherer and part farmer, and they're also working to some extent in the modern economy. And the goal of the project was to do a long-term study of how people produced food and distributed it without grocery stores and banks and all the things that most of us take for granted, Welcome, Paul, to the Science Radio Cafe.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: When you do a long-term longitudinal study, what constitutes long-term? I mean, graduate students, you know, you've got a trajectory, which is really a few years, to do field work at most. That's right. So, w- like, if you're studying aging, you think about, you know, maybe seeing somebody through a life cycle. But, of course, that's longer than, than is practical, I suppose, for an that's academic right.
1: Yeah, so there's two strategies here, and our project ended up employing both. One is that you can learn a lot from what we refer to as the cross-section. That is, if you look at it, a snapshot in time and collect data on people at different ages, and you're able to see, for example, uh, compare the productivity in terms of food production of a 40-year-old versus a 17-year-old that are actually contemporaneous. and potentially infer patterns of development, aging, and so on. The second strategy is to invest the time in order to have that longitudinal sample. And what we ended up doing is basically a kind of a one-two punch in terms of starting with the cross-section, which is all you can get in the first or second year of data collection, but then to continue that out. And at this point, we have over 15 years of data.
0: Let's talk about some of the things you studied, which is the food system, among other things, they're both hunters and farmers.
1: That's right. So
0: not hunter, quote unquote, hunter-gatherers.
1: Yeah, it's kind of hunter-gatherer plus. So it's cultivated grains, maize, plantains, manioc are really essential to the Chimane diet. But at the same time that they farm through extensive horticulture, they also are going out to the forest to collect fruit, to be able to hunt animals. They're fishing out of the rivers. And so in order to have a full complementary diet, they're combining the food that you've through hunting and gathering with that which is produced through farming or horticulture.
0: So what animals do they eat?
1: The most common animals are a species of deer and also peccary, which is a, a kind of a wild pig native to South America. It's delicious.
0: I bet it is. <laughs> what are the tools they use to hunt?
1: In the past, they primarily used bows and arrows. These days, hunting is primarily uh, accomplished with rifles, shotguns, or twenty two caliber rifles. I actually have a database on hunting methods that I was surprised to see that it's actually remarkably common that folks bring back animals that were killed simply by hitting them with a stick or a machete. Often the hunting is opportunistic. That is, you're traveling through the forest and an opportunity to pursue an animal comes up and you may or may not have your rifle with you, but a well-trained Chimane hunter is often able to subdue an animal, whether or not they have the more modern technologies.
0: Badass. Badass.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally badass.
0: I mean, I'm thinking about walking through the jungle and seeing a wild pig and h- killing it with a stick.
1: That's right, spontaneously yeah.
0: Spontaneously, because it's there. I yeah. mean... Have you seen this?
1: I, I haven't seen it myself, although the Chimane are great storytellers, and a lot of the favorite stories, especially the men tell, are about hunting adventures, and so I've gotten to hear lots of tales of uh, these kind of chance encounters. In the case of coming across a, a peccary in the forest, that what you really want is a buddy with you, or, or even better, three or four buddies, so that you can kind of corral the animal that's actually the really key step in being able to capture these pigs and occasionally if several men will go out hunting together they'll be able to bring back a large number of pigs from a troop of peccary that can end up feeding nearly the whole village
0: so let's talk about that as you say in the absence of grocery stores and cash by and large although they will talk about this they must have some cash if they're buying um, rifles and ammunition But in largely in the absence of those things, okay, so they they hunt, they farm, how do they distribute the food?
1: Great question. So in order to be able to answer that question, we carried out a a long-term study in 11 different villages. Essentially, we would interview every family twice a week about all of their food production activities, who went to the forest, who went to the field, who went to the river, and what food they brought back the second step was then to ask about the redistribution of that food. Um, And so we were actually able to map the flow of calories, the flow of energy across these social networks in a way that allows you to see the whole process from production to consumption.
0: And so what was that actually like? I mean, I heard stories. Christopher Bohm wrote a wonderful book in which he talks about hunter-gatherers. And one of the things was that the hunter has to remain humble. That's do you, right, yeah. Did do you see that there?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So this this norm of not being too full of oneself is something that's common to a lot of foraging groups, including the, the chimane. I think the logic is folks that are braggarts, that are maybe a little bit more selfish or, or boastful, end up losing friends. And if you lose friends in a context where your social relationships are your insurance, they are your savings account, then there's a, a real premium placed on being able to maintain good friendships over time because these are the people that you're gonna rely on when you're unsuccessful in hunting or when you break an ankle and are out for a few weeks. It's everyone else in the village that is gonna be able to, to come to your support.
0: And so the hunters basically try to remain humble, whether they want to or not, because that's how it works.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And then... but Okay, so let's say you bring home a large animal. Yeah. How is it then distributed? By the way, how big is this society? What are we talking about?
1: Uh, Today, there are roughly 18,000 chimane, Mm -hmm. spread out across around 90 villages.
0: And so a large animal comes back. What happens then?
1: Right. So the larger the animal, the, uh, the wider the distribution is. So something like a peccary or a, an anta, that in English is a, a tapir, which is one of the largest animals that they bring back. Uh, they also, capybara is another species that they hunt, which is the world's largest rodent, as far as I understand. Very intriguing creatures. So with these large packages, large animals, generally when hunters will come back from the forest, there's essentially a a primary redistribution where parts of the animal are first distributed to other hunters that were collaborating that may or may not have actually helped subdue the animal, but are kind of part of the production effort. And then secondary to that, there's basically pieces of meat that are being shuttled across the village. So a 12-year-old boy might be handed a leg of a a peccary and be told to take it over to, to Jose on the other side of the village. And then there's a third wave of redistribution, which is often those, you know, the head of household will receive that meat and then it'll be prepared into dishes that are then distributed out among children, the elderly. And so it's a process of diffusion that is very regular. And and the bigger the, the animal, the more extensive that diffusion is.
0: Is there like favoritism?
1: That's a good question. I think the answer is yes although I would couch it in terms of, we all have relationships that are kind of the most important to us. You know, there are folks that we feel closer to, other folks that might be more distant acquaintances, and the, the same is true for the Timane. and that is reflected in the patterns of food sharing in that generally the highest volume of food sharing is between close family members, between close friends, but then there's kind of expanding rings of familiarity as you go out from that core, and for small products, if you come back with a, you know, a couple of fish, you might simply share it within your nuclear family. If it's a, say, a medium-sized animal, say it's a night monkey, perhaps you'll share it with five or six other families that live close to you. You come back with a tapir, or better yet, come back with five peccary that you've hunted collectively, and then it's very likely that everyone in the village will receive part of that game.
0: When you have, when you get like five of these animals that I bet produce some pretty good bacon. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> is that like occasion for a feast? That's, that's a good question.
1: Um, generally, that's a bit more of an everyday kind of a thing, in that the meat and the fish that are, are coming out of the river, these are the primary sources of, of fat and protein, which are so essential to the human diet. And so folks are going out hunting several days a week. Or fishing um, and so coming back with animals is not necessarily a cause for uh, breaking out the champagne although i should say that while there's a gender division of labor in Chimani society in that men specialize in hunting at the same time often when men are out on a, a hunting trip especially if it's an extended hunting trip that may be overnight or, or last several days another part of Chimani culture is on the female side on the women's side Women specialize in producing something called chicha, which is a, a beer, a homemade beer made from manioc. And in terms of the Chimani cultural ideal, the best day you can have is when the men come home with plenty of meat, and there's a big vat of chicha ready for these exhausted hunters to be able to drink. It's mildly alcoholic on the level of a perhaps a, a marble IPA, and uh, and so these get to be festive occasions.
0: Beer and barbecue.
1: Beer and barbecue. That's exactly it, yeah.
0: Very interesting. Is the kind of hunting they do what we would call sustainable? In other words, are animals reproducing enough to replace the animals that are being hunted and eaten?
1: That's a very good question. And, well, it's it's complex in that the Timane aren't the only players in this area. Particularly the last few decades, loggers have had a very big impact in this region, as well as there's been some mining... And the population pressure in this part of Bolivia is growing, and that's having an impact on the animal numbers. It's difficult to disentangle how much of that is due to kind of encroachment by these more or less outside actors, Spanish speakers, non, generally non-Indigenous, versus the Chimani themselves. The Chimani population has been growing, and the Chimane residence pattern has become more dense with time as folks have moved from more remote regions towards areas that have better access to uh, roads, that they might be able to go into town to market their rice or to be able to access the river. And so that's affected the distribution of people in space, and it may be that those higher concentrations are having an impact on the the animal population. Certainly the older chimane report that the animal numbers today are disappointing compared to what they remember from their youth. Of course, one has to disentangle nostalgia from fact, but it's a problem that the chimane are are recognizing that is really, you know, a challenge to their ability to maintain their traditional lifestyle.
0: Their traditional lifestyle does seem to be at least I mean, it's not like they're a remote people who've never been contacted and you anthropologists are the first people who've ever seen them that aren't from their society. I mean, there I saw some pictures, they're wearing somewhat Western clothes, they've got their hair cut. they're using rifles and ammunition. So is that balance stable, the balance between their traditional ways of living that are basically outside the cash economy and their contact with so-called modern people?
1: Great question. I think that it, it's a very interesting situation. and it's, There's actually parallels across the world in Asia and in Africa. So there's folks that have a traditional way of life or, or a way of life that has a lot of the features that are common with the way that all of us made a living in the past before a monetized economy, industrial goods, manufactured goods, and so on. In these situations, there is a big draw to essentially to acculturate or to become more engaged with the so-called modern economy or industrialized economy compared to the subsistence economy. On the other hand, particularly for indigenous populations that are often socially marginalized and face discrimination, uh, racism, there's often a lot of risk involved with making the transition into the fully market-based way of making a living and so when one thinks about kind of optimizing your social strategy in a way it's good to spread out risk. And so what we end up seeing, actually, is that some of the chimane that have been most successful in integrating with the market society retain a very strong foothold in the traditional economy as well. And that allows for the complementarity between this kind of new kinds of goods, new kinds of resources, and these older ways of making a living that are still quite robust. And so by mixing these two portfolios, they're actually able to do quite well. And so... What we aren't seeing is a wholesale kind of destruction of Chimane culture, but rather a transformation of Chimane culture as it comes into contact with these new structural forces, these new opportunities.
0: One of the things that's so interesting about these people is that they are really healthy. There's some diseases that we tend to have in industrial society that they tend not to have, and vice versa,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. So on the one hand, the chimane live in a very difficult environment. It's Amazonia, it's hot, it's wet. There is so much life there. And that life wants to, it, it wants to eat you from the inside, what is, do you is mean? the way that I think about it. So parasites, pathogens are very prevalent. And it's something the chimane face as a reality from infancy is the kind of constant threat of assault from these bugs, these creatures that are smaller than we are, and yet they are able to reproduce at a really fast rate and colonize our gut system, and that ends up being worms. Worm, Yeah, worms, uh, helminths, roundworms. And so that is something that particularly in the high desert of New Mexico, something that we really don't have to worry about. And that ends up being something that is in some ways detrimental to Chimane health, but it also is a primer for actually having a really healthy immune system. And so the Chimane, with the exception of the very few Chimane that have migrated into more urban areas, do not have the kind of autoimmune pathologies that have become very common in Western industrialized societies that don't face this pathogen burden.
0: Allergies, Allergies rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. That's
1: right. Even acne is... Uh, they don't have acne. Yeah, so not to the extent that many of us are are challenged as uh, adolescents here. And that, that also goes for things like type 1 diabetes, aspects of type 2 diabetes that have to do with immune response, as well as cardiovascular health and atherosclerosis.
0: Heart disease. Yes. Not much.
1: Remarkably little, almost none. So if you compare Chimane heart health to the hearts of a kind of a standard American population, a Chimane at age. 70 will have a heart that looks like an American in their their 40s or 50s, and they really don't have the kind of manifestations of what's called the metabolic disorders, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes. In some ways, they're on average less healthy because of, of living in such a challenging environment. On the other hand, there's aspects of their functionality, their health, that they're doing much better than we are. Um, And in fact, one of the recent studies that has come out shows that Chimane heart health is better than any other population that's been documented.
0: In the world. In the world. There's kind of a fad in thinking that if we live like our pre-industrial or even pre-agriculture ancestors, then we're healthier. Mm. And that is manifested in things like the caveman diet and so on. And then there's another way of thinking that we are healthier here despite things like heart disease and diabetes than we've ever been before and live into ripe old age in a way that our ancestors or, you know, contemporaries in the forest don't. What's your thinking about that, having lived probably in more different kinds of worlds than most of us have?
1: Sure. Yeah. There's not a single right answer here. What I've seen is that there are some things that more traditional lifestyles get right. And that folks living in, you know, industrialized America are, are, are really kind of off course. And the really key things in terms of what, for example, the Tsimane, um and other groups like the Chimane are doing that modern Americans are really kind of screwing up on, first of all, is physical activity. The Chimane lead an incredibly active lifestyle.
0: What do they do all day?
1: It um, <laughs> depends upon how old you are and how many kids you have to feed. There's a lot of time devoted to food production. You need to have dinner on the, not on the table, because the Chimani don't eat off of tables, but rather you want dinner to be served off of the campfire. And labor has to be put into that. And that labor is very physically intensive at the level of moderate to vigorous exercise. That includes hunting, fishing, and really horticulture is quite physically demanding. In addition to that, we're able to see that even the children, you look at the adolescents and the younger children that might not be spending most of their time in food production, but in play, in the lack of automobiles, everywhere you're going to go, you're going to go on foot. And kids remain active from dawn till dusk. In comparison, the average activity levels of you know an elementary school student or a middle school student in New Mexico those levels are pretty disappointing compared to what Chimane kids are putting out. And that leads to healthier bodies. It leads to development of muscle and cardiovascular fitness. And that's a fitness that's maintained throughout life. Into the 60s and the 70s for the Chimane, any functional Chimane adult is at a level of physical fitness that is, say, comparable to a marathon runner. Every one of these individuals is an excellent athlete as long as they Men have their women. health. Men and women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And that's something that we are, are not getting right in our current society and that we all know we need to change. But it's, it's very difficult when you don't have that bottom line need in terms of producing food. Right now, physical activity isn't integrated into the essentials of making a living. I can go and I can sit at my desk for eight hours and then I can go home and watch Netflix and go to sleep and not have expended any serious physical effort and yet I've made a salary.
0: And petroleum's doing the work for you.
1: That's right. Yeah that's, that's exactly right. One can be theoretical or, or hypothetical and say, well, you know, everyone should exercise more. But in the case of the chimane, we actually see the benefits of that lifelong athleticism borne out in terms of That's one of the key components to, for example, their great cardiovascular health.
0: And they're not saying, gosh, we should go out and do push-ups. They're just living their lives.
1: Right. There's a small segment of boys around 16 to 22 that you do see this kind of interest in frivolous, quote, frivolous exercise. But for the most part, the demand for for physical activity is coming from the really more fundamental needs of life.
0: (laughs) So here you are a uh, blonde-haired anthropologist showing up in Bolivia, showing up and learning not only Spanish but the Tsimane language and w- I mean what is your re- I mean because it's a relationship, you're for- in order to exactly. do anthropology, yeah, you right. have to First of all, you probably can't keep up with them, at least at first, if they're all marathon level athletes. <laughs> um, but well, what's I'll it? What's it like? What is that relationship like?
1: That's good. Yeah. I'll, the The very first day I was in Chimane land on my first trip, I was in a remote village, and our listeners can't see this, but I'm tall and lanky. I'm I'm a little over six four, which means I'm a veritable giant to the Chimane. The reaction that I got, particularly from the men, was. This guy is going to be a really crap hunter because he won't be able to move through the forest like we can to be able to get at the animals and
0: why because you're gonna because the, the jungle is so
1: thick and to be able to move nimbly through the forest without spooking the animals it's really crucial to be to be the right size and I am not the right size for being a an excellent hunter in the rainforest, even if I were. Hunting is, and most of the subsistence skills that the Chimani have, are really quite difficult to learn, and it takes a long period of time to master. It takes a lot of experience. And so I, as a blonde-haired, tall, lanky American, I was one of the most useless people in the village, as far as they were concerned.
0: And so, did they understand what you were doing there?
1: Yes and no. To the extent that I was able to explain where I was coming from in terms of... Really what the mission for me was in going to this remote place, engaging with these folks that are in some ways, you know, living a lifestyle that's very distinct, very different from what we're all used to. At the same time, there is this absolutely essential common denominator of our our shared humanity. And that, that ends up being the real key to being successful in fieldwork and anthropology. The only way that you can have a project that lasts for 15 years that involves you know, over 10,000 participants, it really requires a basis for trust and shared understanding. And so my job right up there with, with actually collecting the data and making sure that we were accomplishing our scientific professional goals was really to be a diplomat in a situation where... We're asking for the help of these folks to be able to learn about them, but also learn about the fundamentals of humanity. And to be able to communicate our gratitude for their collaboration, their willingness to sit through these interviews, it's a big ask. And it requires a context of trust that was really important to establish early on. And really the success of this project comes down to the compassion and the generosity of the Chimane in helping us with this research.
0: So you were really asking something of them. You were asking for their time. You were asking basically to be their guest in their land, presumably to feed you. What did you give them?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's the tangibles and the intangibles. And in terms of intangibles, you know, I made a lot of very close friendships in Chimani land, and those are friendships which exist because of the mutual respect that I was able to cultivate together with the chimano that I was working with. One of the really important parts of this project that was absolutely fundamental to its success was that it had a very large medical component, and a humanitarian component. So as part of the funding for this basic science research from the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute on Aging. Essentially, we were able to pull together a team, a medical team that consisted of Bolivian physicians, biochemists, and North American anthropologists and and other specialists that was essentially a mobile or a nomadic hospital unit. And for a lot of these folks, especially those living in the more remote villages, there really hadn't been even a, a first wave of basic medical care in terms of simply having a checkup, not to mention dealing with the injuries, the different illnesses that are quite common in Bolivia, particularly if, if you don't have access to hospitals. The research essentially was nested within a larger humanitarian goal of bringing Western medicine and the ability to treat some of the maladies that folks were facing. And that, that was really valued The Chimane in the villages that we worked were incredibly grateful for the opportunity to receive medical care.
0: The average Chimane woman has nine kids. When you introduce Western medicine, does that mean that a lot fewer children die?
1: We have seen a drop in infant mortality over the past decade, Uh, we've also seen a drop in adult mortality survival is increasing, and that is likely to affect fertility decisions. Um, And we actually are seeing that, particularly in more acculturated villages, villages closer to town, that there's actually a secular change, a very nascent change in fertility, that is the number of kids that each family is having, that parallels what Happened in Europe and North America over the past two centuries in terms of a reduction in family size from, say, eight, nine, ten kids down to averages of one, two, or three kids in most of the Western world today. And a lot of that is likely to do with changes in infant and child mortality as well as the gains to formal education that allows one to get a job and earn an income in a market economy. That's something that. Tends to require needing to delay fertility, in that if you're going to, for example, be in college until you're 22, it means unless you're going to stack starting your family on top of going to school, it on average tends to delay age of first reproduction. And so these are trends that we're starting to see in the Chimane. That said, because the Chimane are still relatively remote and there are not a lot of kind of education based jobs available to the chimane this transition is very very early you know we won't be expecting chimane families necessarily to drop to having just two kids within a, a generation this is something that is likely to take several generations to play out
0: do they have any like natural form of birth control or what are they using if they if they decide they don't want to have so many kids
1: there are uh, natural forms of birth control that are essentially available as products from the forest. There's some traditional methods, the effectiveness of which I can't speak to, honestly, except that there's certainly a belief and understanding that, for example, this herb or this plant may reduce the probability of having a child even if it's not as effective as as using a condom or or being on the pill.
0: It's funny for me to read anthropology papers because... (laughs) I know now what is the average number of kids they have and what kind of worms they have and the 40-year-olds are doing this kind of work and the 20-year-olds are doing that kind of work and yet I don't feel like I know them. Mm. Give us a sense, a little bit more of a sense of like what their lives are like, what, your, what their days are like, what do they laugh about, what do they get angry about, what, what's the deal?
1: All right, yeah. You know, the, the image that I go back to when I really think about Life in a Chimane village is a chicha party. So, when mom and auntie have brewed up a batch of fresh manioc beer, they've, they've masticated it, it's fermented, it's been sitting for three days, and it's viscous and bubbly. A call will go out to the village, the, the chicha's ready, and folks will pour in, they'll cross the river in the canoe. And generally, you know, you, you sit kind of in a circle, often it's separated a bit by gender women over here, men over here, and you pass the arepa around. Arepa is a a gourd that's hollowed out. It's essentially the drinking vessel. It's your pint of beer. And it's a very communal event in that if you're going to drink chicha at someone's house, then the female head of household will serve up the chicha in the gourd and pass it to someone else in her family who will pass it down the line to you. When it gets to be your turn, you'll take the gourd and scoop out any fibers or, or if there's so many bugs down there, there's often a mosquito that's just landed in. You scoop that out and you take a big drag and then you pass it on. And it's very, very familiar, very communal. And as the evening wears on, everyone's gotten a little drunk. The kids have gotten a little drunk and there's a lot of laughing joke telling there's a lot of a lot of the uh the jokes at least that are directed my way often have a, a sexual nature to them it, there's a lot of playing with those kind of familiar themes of the kind of dirty humor that we also you know, i think that every culture engages in um but certainly which probably isn't open dirty the, yeah it's it's uh it's all very fun the old men were fascinated to ask about viagra because they'd heard about it and They wanted to know if it really existed, if it really worked. And they they said, you know, we have just the same thing. If you go out in the river and there's a bamboo that's grown up through the river and and the river is rushing by, pressing the bamboo, you see this uh, rigid stalk of bamboo bobbing in the water. And if you see one of those, you cut it, you bring it home and you pulverize it and you eat it. And that's supposed to help you get through whatever you need to get through. But there's just a certain kind of openness and interest in learning about the outside world as well as sharing what you know, the kind of things that they like to talk about and the things that they laugh about.
0: Do you miss it?
1: I do. I do. Yes. I just bade bon voyage to one of my colleagues who, who flew down to Chimane land just a couple days ago, and I, I certainly had a a pang of jealousy that he was going to be out in the rainforest drinking chicha and eating peccary within a few days, and uh, it's something I miss, and I, I look forward to going back.
0: What are the lessons that you think... We can learn from this work.
1: There is a uh, a saying in Zulu that a person is a person because of other people. And the research that we've been able to carry out together with the Chimane has been a rigorous scientific vindication of that message. In that when you strip away Western institutions, banks, insurance grocery stores, you take that away. And what do you have to rely on? You have yourself, you have your family, and the other people in your community. And for our species, really, it's really fundamental to being human. Because being human, whatever you're doing, you're probably using your brain in a way that another animal is not. That is, the things that humans do require learning, require sophisticated cognition. And because of that, It requires experience. And experience takes a long time. It's something that you aren't born with, by definition. It's why wisdom is attributed to the elderly and not necessarily the the youngest among us. What that ends up meaning, it requires dependency. It requires dependency on other people. So you compare a a human child, a a human adolescent, to another mammal, other species, and humans remain useless for a remarkably long time. And there's a reason for that, that uselessness is useful in that you spend that time to grow your brain, to have experiences, to go out and practice and screw up. You mean
0: like the first 15, 20 years of your life?
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the time span that we're talking about. And in order to have that luxury of time to learn, somebody else has to foot that bill. And That's what society is. That's what family is. And that's true whether you're a Chimane living in Bolivia or a New Mexican living in Albuquerque. And that's all well and good to say simply as kind of an impression. But what we've been able to do is approach it in a rigorous, quantitative way to actually show what level of need do children have? Who meets that need? And what does it require to be in a position to produce the kind of resources to produce the food that's necessary to underwrite the next generation. And so in the chimane context, not that the chimane are different from any other human population in this regard, but it it was an opportunity to show in a very rigorous way exactly where this dependency comes from and why families come together and support each other in the way that they do, which is really remarkable for humans when you compare us to to other species in the biological world.
0: What are the kids like?
1: The kids are curious, often pretty hyper, remarkably grown up in a lot of ways uh, in terms of spending a lot of time, you know... Couple of kids will go off and be gone all day, messing around in the river, and come back for dinner at the end of the day. So they they have a lot of autonomy and very fun loving, lots of giggling. I uh, in 2014 I went to Bolivia. I, I took my daughter, who was three years old at the time, and that was a a really wonderful experience for me to get to see the children engage with not just a a North American, not an adult like most of the researchers, but to engage with a child. And one of the beautiful things that ended up happening is that, you know, children like to to mimic what the adults are doing. And what my daughter was seeing was the scientific process, data collection, measurement. And so she wanted to emulate that, as did the kids of the folks that we were interviewing. And so while I would be interviewing, you know, a 30-year-old dad about his time hunting, my three-year-old daughter and, uh, and several Chimane kids would be measuring each other's height using the scales that were part of our medical team's equipment and uh, getting on the scale and then uh, stripping off their clothes and, and running into the river when they got hot. Um, and so getting to see that mixing of my family, my culture with the Chimane families and the way of life there was, was really a, an experience that I'm very grateful to have had.
0: Paul Hooper is an evolutionary anthropologist. He's director of education at the Santa Fe Institute. Thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Radio Café Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Café MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com, and they are part of DotFoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.